0: Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 105 Emma Snodgrass, The Girl in Pants. Hi, I'm Jake.
1: And I'm Nikki. This week, we're going to discuss a young woman who defied the gender norms of her times. In the early 1850s, Emma Snodgrass was arrested multiple times in Boston for appearing in public unchaperoned and dressed as a man. Was she a troublemaker looking for thrills? Was she earnestly trying to pass as a man in order to find work and independence in a society with very limited opportunities for women? Or was she a trans person in an era that didn't yet have the words to describe that concept? Unfortunately, the historic record leaves us with more questions than answers. But before we talk about The Girl in Pants... It's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event.
0: Our featured historic site this week is one of once and possibly future grandeur. If you've ever taken the 70 bus from Central Square toward Watertown, you know it can take quite a while to make it down Western Ave in Alston during rush hour. If you sit on the right-hand side of the bus and let your eyes wander you may notice a nondescript, low, rambling structure clad in dark brown shingles standing at the corner of Western Ave and Soldier's Field Road. With peeling paint and boarded-up windows, it doesn't look like much today, but at the turn of the 20th century, this was the headquarters building of the Charles River Speedway. Along with Reedville Trotting Park in Hyde Park, Beacon Park in Brighton, Prowse Farm in Canton, Franklin Trotting Park in Chelsea, and Mystic Park in Medford, The Charles River Speedway was a star in the constellation of racetracks that made the Boston area more truly the hub of the sulky than of the universe, as an 1896 New York Times article said. So what is a sulky, and what was a trotting park? Trotting refers to the sport of harness racing, in which specially bred and trained horses pull small, two-wheeled carts known as sulkies. They have to race one mile at specified gates, either a trot or a pace and if they break into a gallop, the driver's penalized. From the mid-19th century until stock car racing became popular in the 1930s, trotting was a wildly popular spectator sport in the Boston area. Harness races regularly drew as many fans as Red Sox games in the early decades of the 20th century. The sport's popularity was due in part, like stock car racing today, to the fact that driving is something that fans did every day, so they could imagine themselves one day taking the laurels, and the $10,000 purses, of a harness racing winner. It was, of course, also due in part to the rampant illegal gambling that went hand-in-hand with any form of horse racing.
1: The Charles River Speedway was built in 1899, and that rambling brown building at the corner of Western Ave and Soldiers Field Road was built as its operational headquarters. The original building included office space, housing for the staff, storage, and stables that original structure was slowly added onto over the next two and a half decades, leading to the building's eclectic look today. First, a larger two-story stable was added. Then, a whole series of storage sheds and stables were built around the headquarters. In 1923, the buildings were all connected together into a single compound, and in 1924, the first stable was converted into a Metropolitan District Commission police station. When the popularity of harness racing waned in the mid-20th century, the track was closed. In the 1950s, it was bulldozed in order to widen Soldier's Field Road. The park headquarters was used over the years by the MDC and later the DCR as office space, storage, and as a garage for construction equipment. By the early 2000s, it was mostly abandoned, and in 2015, it was badly damaged by a fire. Today, however, there is a plan to revitalize what remains of the Speedway. The DCR has engaged a private developer to stabilize and restore the Speedway headquarters complex. The plan calls, perhaps a little over optimistically, for construction to begin next spring and be complete by the spring of 2020. It envisions a revitalized space full of restaurants and retail shops, makerspaces, and nonprofit offices. As of this writing, It's hard to tell if this vision will become reality, and if so, when. But time may be running out to see the remains of this 20th century sporting palace in its original, unrestored state. Knowing its history, it's interesting to walk the perimeter of the complex. Even with boarded windows, the building stands as a testament to the importance and popularity of the sport of harness racing in its time. You only need a few minutes to explore the public-facing sides of the headquarters. Just take the 70 bus to the corner of Western Ave and Soldiers Field Road.
0: And for our upcoming event this week, we have an author talk at the BPL that we think our listeners will like. Whenever we release an episode about organized crime in Boston, our numbers get a little bit of a bump. Whether we're talking about the Tong Wars that shook Chinatown at the dawn of the 20th century, or the Great Brinks robbery in the North End, or the assassination of the Jewish mobster Charles Solomon, a lot of you seem to love stories about organized crime. If you'd like to hear about mobsters and malls, put Emily Sweeney's book talk at the main branch of the BPL in Copley Square on your calendar. She'll be speaking on November 14th about her book Gangland Boston, a tour through the deadly streets of organized crime. Here's how the event page describes it. While lurking in local restaurants or just around the corner inside that inconspicuous building, Countless criminals have quietly and not so quietly made their mark on Boston. Drawing upon years of research and an extensive collection of rare photographs, Emily Sweeney sheds light on how gang violence unfolded during Prohibition, how the Italian Mafia rose to power, and how the Gustin Gang came to be. She also uncovers little known facts about well known crime figures. The event starts at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, November 14th in the Commonwealth Salon at the Copley Square Library. It's open to the public at no charge. Now, it's time for this week's main topic.
1: In the mid-1850s, a new party animal made a brief splash in Boston's nightclub scene. George Green was described as carrying a cane and wearing a cusseth hat, which is better known today as a slouch hat, like the Australian Army uses in their formal uniforms. A press account said he had a preference for a frock coat, glazed cap, striped pantaloons, etc., and has the appearance of quite a good-looking young man. Another news report said that he was about 4 feet 10 inches in height, which is a little bit on the small side, even for them. George Green was arrested in Boston at least four times in 1852 and 53, and ended up making headlines across the country. What kind of behavior could be so terribly shocking to justify this series of arrests and be so newsworthy? An article in San Francisco's Daily Alta, California, from February seventh, 1853, describes how Green, used to circulate in all the drinking houses, made several violent attempts to talk horse and do other things for which fast boys are noted. Now, that may not seem so bad. Certainly, a lot of young men in Boston spent a lot of time in bars shooting the breeze and bragging. Talking horse isn't what got George Green arrested. George Green got arrested because he was actually a young woman named Emma Snodgrass. Now, before we go any farther, it's important to keep in mind that the language of gender and sexuality in the 1850s was completely different from what we're used to today. At the risk of sounding overly cisnormative or misgendering Emma, it's almost impossible to tell from the historical record whether she would be considered a trans person today. What we know about her life is pieced together from a series of brief newspaper stories starting in late fall of 1852 and running through the summer of 1853.
0: Emma was from New York City, and she was 17 years old when she first came to Boston. It's not clear to me how long she was able to live as a man before the first time she was arrested, but it was at least long enough for her to get a job. As George Green, she was hired as a clerk in the clothing store of John Simmons, on the corner of Water and Congress Streets. This elegant, granite-fronted building would eventually be destroyed in the 1872 Great Boston Fire, but in 1852, it was the seat of an innovative retail experiment. Simmons, whose will would provide an endowment for Simmons College, gambled on the idea of mass-producing clothing in standard sizes. In the past, bespoke clothing was the norm. When you needed a new set of clothes, you'd go see a tailor, who'd take your measurements, and then custom cut and sew your suit, which you could return and pick up in a few weeks. Simmons introduced a new model. He'd moved from Rhode Island to Boston to work with his brother, a tailor. As time passed, he noticed that a lot of customers were having their clothing made in very similar sizes. Near his retail store, he built a clothing factory that employed mostly women they cut and sewed a range of popular clothing pieces in common sizes. This was the birth of ready-to-wear fashion. Eventually, his new model proved to be a success. By the end of the Civil War, John Simmons was the biggest clothing manufacturer in the country. And when he died in 1870, he was able to make a special bequest. It is my will to found and endow an institution to be called Simmons Female College for the purpose of teaching medicine, music, drawing, designing, telegraphy, and other branches of art, science, and industry best calculated to enable the scholars to acquire an independent livelihood.
1: However, in 1852, John Simmons's star was still on the rise, and it was that same year that he hired a young, unusually short clerk who went by the name of George Green. As we said, it's not clear how long George, or Emma, was able to keep this ruse going. By about November 20th, she would be arrested and forced to return to the New York home of her father, a police captain. We know of the arrest because a week later she was back and she was arrested again, as reported in the New York Daily Times on November 30th, 1852. Miss Emma Snodgrass, a young woman of 17 belonging to New York, has for a second time been taken into custody by the police of Boston for donning the breeches. The first time of her appearing in male apparel was, it will be remembered, when she applied for and obtained a situation as clerk at the clothing establishment of John Simmons, from whence, on the discovery of her real sex, she was taken to the police office and thence to the house of her father, a respectable city official in New York. A day or two since she returned to Boston and, in female apparel, put up at the Washington Coffee House. Yesterday she left the house, but soon after returned, dressed in a frock coat, cap, vest, and pants. The barkeeper at once recognized her and informed the chief of police of her whereabouts. What her motive may be for thus obstinately rejecting the habiliments of her own sex is not known. We also found an article reprinted from the Boston Journal that was probably originally published on about December 3rd, 1852. Again in breeches, The New York girl who was noticed about a week since under the name of George Green and Emma Snodgrass and who donned the pants and was employed a short time as a clerk in an extensive clothing warehouse in this city is again in town. It will be recollected that a few days since the girl was furnished with proper and comfortable clothes and returned to New York City with her brother. On Monday evening, Emma arrived in this city, dressed in a neat frock coat, cloth cap, and black broadcloth pants, and took lodgings at the Washington Coffee House, where she was identified the next day as the female who was the subject of so many remarks through the papers about a week since. She was taken to the office of the chief of police and last night remained at the house of one of the city officers, who will see that she is again returned to her father's house. The motives of the girl for persisting in such improper conduct has not transpired.
0: Though she was able to maintain her identity as George Green convincingly for a brief time as she worked as a clerk in the Simmons store, when Emma Snodgrass went out on the town, she seems to have made little attempt to hide her femininity. News reports said that despite her male clothing, her features and manners were entirely feminine. In her book, Appropriating Dress, Women's Rhetorical Style in 19th Century America, Carol Mattingly examines why she drew so much attention and why she was seen as dangerous. The rhetoric that accompanies such descriptions suggests a license for desire associated with women who defied traditional norms perhaps a release of the suppression surrounding 19th-century pretensions about passive, proper women that restricted normal expressions of sexual desire. Ironically, the confusion surrounding attitudes towards such women connected seemingly contradictory claims about the unsexed nature of such women with a rhetoric that exposes the enticement and allure observers felt. On the 31st of December, the Herald reported, Since the peculiarities of Emma Snodgrass have become so familiar to the public, the custom of ladies promenading the streets in coat and pants is getting to be rather common. Almost any evening, some of these unsexed individuals may be seen in Washington Street creating a sensation among the romantic loving young men. The contradictory message here that women dressed in coats and pants became unsexed yet created a sensation among romantic young men demonstrates the confusion that obvious cross-dressing created, coupling disdain with desire. The confusion of her male dress aside, the mere existence of an unchaperoned woman in an all-male space was so scandalous as to be nearly unheard of in Boston. Any woman who would mix and mingle with the boys at the bar was immediately suspected of being a prostitute, a woman of dangerously low character. The normal way to deal with women who had no man to support them was to charge them with vagrancy, defined as being without home, lawful employment, or means of support.
1: On December ninth, 1852, the Boston Times alerted readers to Emma's latest arrest and speculated whether the charges against her would be simple vagrancy or something more serious. She will be arraigned in the police court today at 10 a.m when we shall see under what form of complaint she is to be victimized. It must be something else than the mere fact of her wearing breeches. What is it? Common loafer? Suspicious person? Vagrant? Or has she been doing some other naughty thing? Later that same day, the Boston transcript carried an article about her latest arrest in Boston and her triumph over the charges brought against her. The Girl in Pants Emma Snodgrass, who has been so notorious of late in visiting different parts of New England, was arrested last evening in this city by police officer Oliver and was this morning arraigned in the police court on a charge of vagrancy, the examination of which, however, resulted in her complete triumph and her consequent discharge from custody. It is understood that she is the daughter of a New York official. The examination developed the fact that prior to the first arrest of the accused, she was regularly employed as a clerk in one of our mercantile palaces, and that during all her subsequent wanderings, far and near, she has been well supplied with money and all bills were promptly paid so that the charge of being without home, lawful employment, or means of support could not be legally sustained, and the court promptly ordered a discharge, much to the apparent satisfaction of a crowded audience. His honor afterwards had an interview with Emma in the judge's private room and gave her some most fatherly and wholesome advice touching her recent eccentricities, which she received with becoming grace and promised a reformation. It is expected that she will at once return to her home in New York. She was today dressed in her usual male attire which is really little or no disguise, her form being so light and fragile, and her features and manners so entirely feminine.
0: The timeline gets confusing because so many of the news articles mention both Emma's current arrest as well as earlier incidents. If we've put it together correctly, she was arrested twice in November and once in December of 1852. Apparently her legal victory, along with uh, the approving reception she got from onlookers in court, made Emma bolder. In January, she was back in Boston for what we believe was the last time. This time, she didn't come alone. She was accompanied by a companion named Harriet French, who was also dressed in men's clothing, as reported in the Daily Journal of Evansdale, Indiana, on January tenth, 1853. Emma Snodgrass was again arrested in Boston on Friday, together with a companion whose name finally resolves itself into Harriet French after having passed through a variety of romantic male sobriquettes. Harriet was arrayed in a man's rig. She sported a Kosseth hat, shiny gaiters, model cane, black pants, coat, and all that. An article in the Daily Dispatch of Richmond, Virginia notes that Emma received her usual punishment of being packed up and sent back to her father in New York. Harriet, however, didn't have the monetary means that Emma did. This left her vulnerable to a traditional charge of vagrancy, and she faced more serious consequences. A short time previous to her leaving Boston, a young girl named Harriet French, who had likewise assumed coat and pantaloons, was found in company with Emma, arrested, taken before a magistrate, and sentenced to imprisonment for two months. The court subsequently, however, gave her one day's grace to leave the city. Such is the difference between breaches without money and breaches with. All attempts to punish Emma have failed simply because she had money.
1: The period sources focus on the titillating nature of Emma's choice to wear male clothes, and they say disappointingly little about her motivations. Was she just having a lark? It's easy to imagine that going to a strange city, putting on men's clothing, and entering the world of saloons and theaters that was otherwise off-limits to a woman would have been fun, thrilling, and just dangerous enough. As the comparison between Emma and Harriet makes clear, there was little to fear from the law as long as she could demonstrate that she had the means to support herself. On the other hand, was Emma a lesbian? It's just as easy to imagine Harriet and Emma shipping up to Boston in order to gain space to entertain a romance. News accounts tell us that Emma had received lots of male attention during her earlier outings in Boston, but they in no way tell us whether that attention was wanted or welcome. The two women were already openly violating their society's norms for gender and sexuality in their mode of dress and by entering traditionally male spaces. Could that be evidence that they were more than friends? Certainly, there is historical evidence of other same-sex romantic relationships between women at that time, but there is nothing more to go on than the brief news pieces we've read, and there's not enough detail to confirm either woman's sexuality. Or, was it simply easier to live as a man in 1853? We know that Emma Snodgrass earned at least some of the money that allowed her to avoid vagrancy charges while working as George Green. While there was some wage work available to women at the time, there were far more and more lucrative opportunities for men. A few years later, the New York Daily Times carried an interview with a young woman who had been arrested after adopting a full-time male identity as Charlie. A couple of articles we read indicated that Charlie was actually Harriet French, but there doesn't seem to be any evidence for that claim. The interview ran under the headline, Police Intelligence, an Unfeminine Freak, a Girl in Man's Clothes, on March Fourteenth, 1856, and read, in part, But why do you dress in male attire? Well, because I can get along better, can get more wages. A poor girl has no chance. I am not a vagrant, never have been, and never will be, so long as I have hands to work. See there, my hands are hard, harder and bigger than yours. That looks like work. Yes, my hands are big and homely, too. They were little once when I was living at home with my mother. But then there is no use crying about it, is there? I have roughed it so long, and I may as well be rough. All I want is that folks will let me alone. I can get along. But you have had no visible means of gaining a livelihood for some time. I know I have been out of work, but I have paid my way, and when a man pays his way, he ain't a vagrant. I have been stopping since I came at the Richmond House in Chamber Street, pay two fifty a week for my room, and eat at Greens. I have some money that I have saved yet, and of course, I am not a vagrant.
0: It's tantalizing to imagine any of these motivations for Emma Snodgrass's behavior, but the truth is that we have no way to know. Emma may have given up on coming to Boston after her arrest in January 1853, but she didn't give up her preference for pantaloons or her predilection for travel. A series of news stories that spring and summer lets us track Emma's travels halfway across the continent, and the datelines from all around the country give us a sense of her widespread, though temporary, fame. Reporting from way down in Louisiana, the March 15th, 1853 edition of the Baton Rouge Daily Comet reported on Emma's travels across upstate New York. Miss Emma Snodgrass is determined that she will not be a woman, that is, if we are to credit the papers. She appeared for the first time in male attire at Albany. From thence, she went to Cayuga. From Virginia, the Richmond Daily Dispatch of March 24th confirms her appearance in Albany and adds her ambitious goal of visiting California, or maybe even Australia. Emma Snodgrass, the girl in pants, was at Albany one day last week, where she registered her name as Henry Lewis. She says she's going to California or Australia. The southerner of Tarboro and Edgecombe County, North Carolina, ran a piece on April 30th, lumping Emma Snodgrass, who had a preference with traditional male clothing, in with women who were beginning to experiment with bloomers, loose pants worn under a knee-length dress that were popularized by suffragists like Lucy Stone. Bloomerism Emma Snodgrass, the lady of newspaper notoriety, the wanderer in men's apparel, who sometimes since created a great deal of talk in Boston and was finally brought before the police magistrate of that city, arrived at Albany on Thursday. She has had an unconquerable desire for roaming. Emma being asked if she preferred the male garb to that of her own sex, as an apparel, answered to the satisfaction of the most ultra-bloomer. She left in the afternoon cars on her way to Chicago, St. Louis, etc. Ultimately, she says, either California or Australia will be her destination. On May 28, 1853, the Washington, D.C. Daily Evening Star reported... Emma Snodgrass, the young lady in pants, appeared in Buffalo on Sunday last, habited in a very becoming and genteel attire. She's about 4 feet 10 inches in height. So she had made it from New York City, to Albany, to Cayuga, which is right outside Syracuse, to Buffalo. The next report, coming in on June 10th from the Davenport, Iowa Democratic banner, records that she had made it as far west as Ohio. Miss Emma Snodgrass, the young lady who is so fond of wearing pantaloons and other articles of male attire, was arrested in Cleveland last week.
1: So the newspapers had tracked Emma's progress across New York, past the Great Lakes, clipping the corner of Pennsylvania, and down into Ohio, where she was arrested. What should we make of a story in the Times and People's Press of Fort Wayne, Indiana, which reported on April 27th that Emma Snodgrass, The girl in pantaloons, who disturbed the equanimity of this sleepy magistracy in the eastern cities not long since, was last seen at Louisville on her way to California. She wears a frock coat, glazed cap, striped pantaloons, etc., and has the appearance of quite a good-looking young man. She is a practical woman's rights girl. It's hard to be certain but this appears to be the first of a handful of hoax stories about Emma. Her exploits became so popular that newspapers in small cities would run stories saying that Emma Snodgrass had turned up in town, whether she had ever been there or not. After Cleveland, the trail goes cold. What happened to Emma Snodgrass in the end? Given the rate of violence against trans people in our modern world, It's easy to imagine a dark fate for a young person who defied gender norms who was traversing the country on their own. However, if she was arrested in Cleveland, it's likely that the Cleveland police did the same thing the Boston cops did and sent her home to her father. The Grant County Herald of Lancaster, Wisconsin, printed a possible confirmation of that outcome on July 13th, 1853, but without citing anything in the way of sources. It is stated that Emma Snodgrass has repented, gone home, taken off her breeches, and sworn eternal attachment to petticoats and propriety. This is to her credit. I prefer to imagine that she talked a little horse to get free of the authorities in Cleveland, made it to California at the height of the gold rush, hitched up her breeches, and boarded a sleek clipper ship bound for Australia.
0: Before we leave you, please keep in mind how often Emma Snodgrass and Harriet French were subject to harassment, arrest, or both. We don't know if they identified in a way that we would call transgender today, but we do know that transgender people face harassment and discrimination today. Trans people's rights are on the ballot in Massachusetts this week. When you vote, please consider voting yes on Question 3 to protect their vital civil rights and give them the same protections that we all enjoy. To learn more about Emma Snodgrass, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 105. We'll have links to all the newspaper stories we quoted from in the episode. We'll also have a photograph that's purportedly of Emma Snodgrass, as well as a link to the book Appropriating Dress, Women's Rhetorical Style in 19th Century America, by Carol Mattingly which discusses Emma Snodgrass and other women who didn't conform to the norms of fashion and gender in their era. And of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event.
1: If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or, you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show.
0: That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about Mildred McAfee's journey from Wellesley to the waves.